So as we pull up the first slide, uh, I want to tell you, you know, the 80s were kind of crazy. Some of you know that I grew up in the 80s, and in middle school, uh, this wouldn't be allowed in this day and age, uh, but in middle school, they would scare us to death with films in our classes about things like, what happens if you drink too much? You're going to end up like in the gutter and in the hospital. What happens? They would show you films with like, this is what your lungs look like if you smoke. Uh, this is what your brain is like on drugs and all these things. And, and the, the worst, these aren't even the worst. The worst during the 80s was they would show us this film. I can't even remember the name of it. Some of you who are older might remember. But they show you this film of what happens to the human body in a car crash. I mean, it was like, it was more disgusting than, than a lot of horror films that, that, that you watch. And, then, and so for me and my buddies in middle school, we swore we would never drink, we would never smoke, we would never do drugs, and we would never drive recklessly, much, maybe not ever drive, to be honest. We were scared and terrified of the world around us. And yet, by the time that we all entered high school, most of my group of friends were smoking, all of us were drinking, many of us were on drugs. And so the question I was thinking about is, how is it possible that we can be persuaded that something is deadly and unhealthy and unwise, and yet still choose the opposite of what we believe? And that's what we're going to look, like, look at this morning, because it's easy for us as human beings to be convinced, but that's not the same as having convictions. And our starting point this morning is understanding that every day at school and at work, uh, in your entertainment and in your ethics, how you spend your money and your time, that you are making choices between two sets of values, priorities and practices that are in direct opposition to one another, one from the kingdom of God and the other from the kingdom of the world. And what it reflects, what it really reflects is what you genuinely believe, who you really are. Now, before you start kind of your, your, your kind of Christian-y radar maybe starting to get up, uh, what I'm not saying is that everything in the culture is evil, like everything in the kingdom of the world is evil. Because I want you to hear there's uh, so much tremendous dignity and beauty in things like arts and science and music from people who are made in the very image of God, because all of us are, even though tarnished by sin in this, in this world. But what I want you to be thinking about is how often unconsciously and undiscerning we are about what drives our decisions and our actions. And so the question we're answering today and for the rest of this series is, how do you live for Christ while living in our current culture? And so if you, if you have a Bible, you want to turn in it to Daniel chapter 1. There's Bibles underneath every other seat in front of you if you want to pull one out. The book of Daniel is after the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament. And if you don't want to bother, it'll be also be up on the big screen. But we're starting this new series, as Pastor Daniel mentioned, Between Two Worlds, where we're discovering what uncompromising faith in God and faithfulness in the world look like through the book of Daniel. And to give you a little bit of historical background, you see, you might remember the first that there was a king named David, pretty famous in the Bible, and after King David, who loved the Lord, friend of God, Israel started to turn away from following God, adopting the values and vices of the surrounding nations, all the way down, including his very grandson, which eventually led to a civil war, because people could see he was a corrupt king. <clears throat> and so what happened was the ten tribes of the north 
they split away from the royal family and uh, from, from Judah, and they decide that we're, we're Israel. We're, we're Israel proper now. And so it's split into two, two nations. But even the ones that split off, those 10 tribes, were infected with idolatry and compromise, turning away from God. And so God's judgment on northern Israel was that the Assyrian Empire came, and they conquered Israel in 722 B.C., completely wiped them out. And so that's why afterwards, in the Bible and in history, you only hear about Judah and only the people who are called the Jews instead of the Israelites. And despite Israel's fate, despite warnings from several prophets that God sent along the way for more than a hundred years, Judah also continuously turned their hearts away from God to the love and worship and serving of other things. And so in Isaiah chapter 39, verses 6 and 7, the prophet Isaiah prophesied, God spoke through him, that the Babylonian empire would come, conquer them, plunder their riches, and take their sons to serve in Babylon. And then it happens in Daniel's lifetime as he becomes a young exile into a pagan culture surrounded by different language, different values, different gods, and he has a decision to make. Am I going to be shaped by life in Babylon or by God? And I want to challenge you that like him, that you and I need to figure out how we're going to live for Jesus and his kingdom while living in a culture that is diametrically opposed to it in Babylon. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel. Let's stop right there for a moment. So in verses 1 and 2, Daniel, I want you to know at this point, he's a teenager. He's about 15 years old. And he is witnessing prophecy unfold before him. In 605 B.C., Babylon comes and attacks the city of Jerusalem, the, the capital of, of Judah, pillages the temple, and taking all these treasures and tools for worship to their own temple. It would be like a bully coming into your house and deciding, I'm going to take your clothes, your cars, your keys to their home. Because the message they're sending is, we own you. We own your stuff. We own your God. They are defeated. And so what we're seeing here is not just them taking the temple treasures, but also in verse 3, they take Daniel, an entire generation of young people, also taken to a foreign land, far from home and seemingly far from God. Question, so why does God allow something like this to happen, something so utterly humiliating, not just to God's people, but to God himself? Well, if we read parallel passages in history in 2 Kings chapter 24, it tells us this king, King Jehoiakim, he continued to practice the idolatry and immorality of his forefathers, both him and the people of, of Judah. And he went even so far as, remember how I told you that there were various prophecies that prophets kept giving to them about Babylon is coming, God is going to judge, judge uh, us as a nation. And, and so Jehoiakim, he takes a prophecy made by Jeremiah, and he burns this biblical prophetic scroll. It's like taking your Bible and just burning it, or burning just the parts that you don't like. 
the part that warns them of Judah's destruction by Babylon. We see that in Jeremiah chapter 36 because he thinks that God will not do anything about it. And so we see in this passage that when, bless you, that Jehoiakim and Judah fall under judgment, this is not political power or military might that is afflicting the nation. Verse 2 says, the Lord gave the king of Judah into the hands of the king of Babylon. That the trouble that they're facing is not because God is uninvolved or unavailable. It's the exact opposite. He's still sovereign. That means he's still in control. He's still Lord. And he holds his people, even kings, accountable for their ongoing and unrepentant sin. In this particular case, are you trusting and worshiping and serving God or the idols of the culture? And I want you to know something about Babylon. As we talk about this city, it is, a deep, it is infused with deep symbolism. Now, on the one hand, Babylon is a specific city, a specific kingdom in the 6th century BC, where, in, where modern Iraq is right now. On the other hand, biblically, it also represents the spiritual powers at work in every secular kingdom in every age. So in the New Testament, for those of you who are familiar with your Bibles, uh, we see that the early Christians, they would use Babylon as a code for the Roman Empire. And then we remember, for those of you who've been with us, we studied the book of Revelation, in that John, the Apostle John, uses the word Babylon to describe this whole world system in opposition to Christ. And I want you to think about, even from this passage, where is the city of Babylon in verse 2? It says, they took those temple treasures to the land of Shinar. Now, for those of you who are history buffs and starting to make this connection, way back at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 11, verse 2, Shinar is the place where mankind gathered together, instead of obeying God to fill the earth, they gathered together to build a great tower, to make a name for themselves in place of God, apart from God, called the Tower of Babel. And as we think about this, Babel, Babel, Babylon. I see what you did there, God. Good one. And so this is a spirit, a system at work in the secular world ever since the Tower of Babel and a kingdom built on independence from God in opposition to God where man is in charge and at the center. And so the main idea of today's passage, as well as the whole book of Daniel, is that when we are caught between these two worlds, kingdom of God, kingdom of the world, kingdom of Babylon, are we going to trust that a faithful God is sovereign over every kingdom, over every situation by remaining faithful to him in yours? Like Daniel, that even in the distractions, in the detours, in the difficulties, that God is not absent or abandoned you, he's still in control. He's still sovereign. He's still Lord. And so Daniel trusts him and follows him by faith. And I want to propose to you that most of us are like Daniel in the sense that you're called to serve in Babylon. Few people in this congregation are called to serve or work at the church, in the church, but the majority of us are called to serve God out in Babylon. That five out of seven days of your week, you're at work, you're at school, you're in your community in Babylon. And the book of Daniel is a manual for how do you survive and thrive between these two worlds. How to live for the kingdom of Christ while I'm living in Babylon. 
And the way this book is broken up is chapters 1 through 6 are all about Daniel's life in the kingdom of Babylon. So you hear those, those famous stories, you know, like the fiery furnace and the, the lion's den. And then the second half, so Daniel's life in the kingdom of Babylon. Chapter 7 through 12 is Daniel's visions in the kingdom of God. Now, the other thing to note about this book is it's not only divided by those parts, but it's also divided by language. You see, in chapter 1, it's written in Hebrew to begin with because it, the story starts in Israel. And then suddenly it switches in, in chapters 2 through 7 to be written in, in Aramaic, which is the language of Babylon at that time during the reign of, reign of King Nebuchadnezzar because all the events in those chapters take place in Babylon. And then chapters 8 through 12, it reverts back to Hebrew because we're back to talking about prophecies for God's people at the end of time. And so the question of the book of Daniel is this. You know how to be faithful to God in the Hebrew chapters, but can you do it in the Aramaic ones? In other words, you may faithfully serve Jesus on your home turf when you're at church, but what does that look like as you live in Babylon? What does it look like in your real job, in your real life, at your real work uh, with real people and in your real community and in your job and school and in your neighborhood that's driven by secular values that are at war with the gospel? And so we want to start by recognizing the tactics of Babylon. Let's read on. Let's start again from verse 3. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, uh, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So in verse 3, we see Isaiah chapter 39, that prophecy is fulfilled, that Babylon uh, deports these Jewish people based on what Babylonians value. Number one, socially, if you're from the right family, a royal family. Physically, if you are young and handsome and without disability or deformity. Intellectually, if you are sharp and knowledgeable and can apply all these things. Relationally, if you have the people skills and poise for public service in the royal courts. So what does Babylon say about their value and your, their value and ours? That is based on your performance and your appearance, your ability and self-sufficiency apart from God. And I would argue that is not much different from the values of our worldly system today. And if you are surrounded with those kind of voices telling you that's what makes you valuable, that's what you contribute, that's what's valuable in society or in this world, and you are around those values long enough, then they start to become the values and voices in your own head. You know it. You know it well. It's the one that tells you that you're not doing enough, that you're not trying hard enough, that you don't look good enough. And tragically, that voice is often louder than God's voice. When the gospel tells you in Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrates his love for us in this, while you and I were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That your value isn't in your appearance or your performance, but in a God in heaven who says, you are so worthy of my love. Your value to me is that I would trade my very best, my own son, and sacrifice him for you when you were at your very worst in your sin. Not when you were a good and holy Christian practitioner, but at your very worst. Because you're worth trading my very best. That's what your value is. 
Okay, then what's happening with these young Jewish men? Why, why are they being taken away back to the city of Babylon? Verse 4, to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. That's another word for them. Basically, they're being put in this three-year intensive college to win the hearts and minds of these young men while they're still young and moldable by separating them from God's worship, God's people, God's values, and steeping them in Babylonian religion and education, in their literature, in their language, in their culture, and their customs. And so what you need to know is the first tactic that Babylon uses is Babylon surrounds us, bless you, with values that separate us from God. And so when I think about them educating Daniel, you know, you and I both know education is a very powerful tool for good or for evil. In the 1930s, Nazi Germany used Hitler's youth movement to teach millions of children and teenagers with rewritten history, with distorted biology about a so-called superior race. And unfortunately, thousands of teachers also in Germany joined the Nazis Teacher Association to buy into the propaganda and spread that kind of misinformation. Now, I don't want you to mishear me. You know, it's not some conservative Christian rant against, like, uh, uh, the education system. I'm a huge believer in the public school system. I have, we have a great relationship with our principal at Burbank, uh, just down the street. There are great teachers in Hayward. In fact, many of them, some of them, are from this very church. And yet, it is not the teacher's or education's job to get your kid to know and follow Jesus and his truth. It's yours. And this idea is, isn't just for parents. It's not just about parents surrounding their kids with the right values and voices. You need to know, even if you are, whether, got, whether or not you're a parent, that for all of us, it is not Babylon's goal to help you grow closer to Jesus. No one in the, the worldly system is going to say, oh, you should read God's word more, or you should go worship with God's people, and, and you should go live God's character. No, you need to actively know it, choose it, and pursue it for yourself. And so I want to ask you, what values and voices do you surround yourself or your kids with, or that you allow them to be surrounded by? And are you sifting those through a biblical worldview? Now, Secondly, you know, Babylon not only instills you with its values, but it also attracts you with its comforts. Look at verse 5. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Let me paint a picture for you. Uh, I talked about how northern Israel, that kingdom, was decimated by the Assyrian Empire. And then Babylon eventually came along and defeated them. But what you need to know about Assyria was that the way they controlled their enemies was through brutality. And so they would torture and skin men alive from the, the, country, the nations that they conquered, rape the women, enslave all the children. But Babylon comes along, and they have a very different tactic. They don't oppress you with the cruelty of slavery. They impress you with the perks of public service. Because remember, they're recruiting all these young men to come and be educated and serve in the royal court. And so I want you to imagine being someone like Daniel. You're a young person. After 900 miles of trekking through the desert from Jerusalem to Babylon, you're hot, you're tired, your life is terrible, and you think that this is it. I'm marching to my doom. And then you walk in wide-eyed through this beautiful, 
50-foot gate covered in blue carvings and paintings into the largest city in the world. This city has its own river because a marvel of their engineering is they redirected the mighty Euphrates River that we've seen all the way back in Genesis. They redirected, they built canals so that it flowed through the center of the river, the, the center of the city. So imagine a lazy river like, you know, for us today, we, 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 it would be like us, uh, those kind of rides where you have all those inner tubes that you just kind of float down the river. That's, how they, that's what they made, this beautiful water source that people uh, enjoyed recreationally. And it was large enough that cargo ships actually sailed directly into the city. Amazing. And so you see all these, this, this lazy river, you see the palm trees. And not only that, at the center of the city, they have reconstructed the Tower of Babel a 300-foot ziggurat, this tiered pyramid structure, covered in the hanging gardens. Many of you have heard of that, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. And so this is like stepping into the magic kingdom. You just walked through the desert 900 miles. You step into the magic kingdom with these flowers that are hanging, with this lazy river, with these amazing, huge architectural marvels. And it's like stepping into the magic kingdom. You hear the music. It's a small, small empire after all. And you smell in the air the cotton candy and the popcorn. And then you think to yourself, this is not so bad. And on top of that, you come in, you're not being forced into cruel slavery. They offer you a job. And every day, it says in verse 5, you get to enjoy the free steakhouse buffet and open bar from the king's reserve. This isn't the cheap stuff. This isn't like going to one of those, you know, the buffets that I, I like to go to. This is the good stuff. Like the, like the, this is the king's food. The king's wine, his reserve. And so Babylon doesn't twist your arm behind your back, doesn't beat you into submission. Instead, Babylon seduces us with comforts that distract us from God. That's the next slide. To get you to forget about your past and your purpose with God. And the message is, you could live here. You can get a good education for free here. You could work here. You could marry a nice Babylonian girl and start a family here. You could have the good life. And over time, you wake up one morning and you're just as Babylonian as them. It reminds me of this woman from Iraq who became a Christian while she was there, loved Jesus, but she was persecuted daily for her faith, risking her life even to speak the name of Jesus. And her own family wanted to kill her. And she says, the goal of every believer in the Middle East is to get to the United States to be free, to be able to exercise your faith. And God opened a door for her to be able to do that, her and her family. But after two years of being in the United States, she told her husband, I've lost my fire for Jesus. I've lost my dependence on Jesus. I've fallen asleep. I've fallen asleep. I think that I actually need to go back. You see, there's a danger in living in abundance and ease because we'll turn good things into God things in place of Jesus because being comfortable lulls us into being complacent in our faith. And someone asked her, well, I don't know how you do it, how you were a Christian in Iraq all these years. How can you follow Jesus without any authority or any security or any freedom? And she turned around and said, how do you do it? When I was in Iraq, Jesus was all I had every day but you have all these other things that you can run to for comfort and entertainment and satisfaction. And some of you, you look at me and you realize, like, yeah, Josh, we, we can see in your life how much you enjoy the comforts of life. 
but I don't worship or tre the treasures and pleasures of this world. And I like, and maybe you don't, maybe, you're, maybe comfort is not your idol. But I like the way that Bob Shogren, he is um, the founder of this missionary organization called Unveiling Glory. He describes another danger to too much comfort. He describes it as cat and dog theology. A dog says, you pet me, you feed me, you shelter me, you love me, you must be God. A cat says, you pet me, you feed me, you shelter me, you love me, I must be God. And that is the tendency of the human heart, that instead of worshiping the one who blesses us, the allure of making ourselves the center of the universe in place of God. Third tactic, verse 6. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. You probably recognize them, at least the three other boys, by their Babylonian names. Now, I want to tell you, this is not a random detail, not a throwaway detail. It's not like, oh, you walked into a new country, and we can't pronounce your name, so let's give you these hipster Babylonian nicknames like Zelen or Jovid or something like that. <laughs> but if you remember, in verses 3 to 5, what hap what's happening is they're erasing their Jewish culture, right? Converting them to Babylonian indoctrination, indoctrination and diversions in life. But now they're not only erasing their Jewish culture, they're erasing their Jewish names for Babylonian ones. And there are deeply insidious spiritual undertones. Let me explain to you why. The name Daniel means God is my judge. But Belteshazzar means the Babylonian god Bel is the one who protects my life. Hananiah, the Lord is gracious. Shadrach, the Babylonian moon god Aku, commands me. Mishael, who is like our God? Meshach, who is like the God Aku? Azariah, the Lord helps me. Abednego, servant of the God Nebo. Why? You see, they have good Hebrew names that point to the glory of God, and now they're being changed to the praise of foreign and false gods because... Babylon shapes us with an identity detached from God. The issue is one of identity. What defines you? Who you are? What you really live for? The one true God or these other gods and idols? Well, I'm a Christian. Are you sure? Here, let's think about this, about what defines you. What do you give the first, the best, the most of your dollars and days to? your attention and devotion. For some of us, our identity is wrapped around our favorite sports team or our favorite political team or our financial plan. We talk about it all the time. We sing our praises to it more than we talk about and sing praises to Jesus, to be very frank with you. For some of us, we are defined by our position, our performance in school or our paycheck, our hobbies, our travel, our Instagrammable meals, our sin. If you're still uncertain, maybe consider uh, when you wake up in the morning, what is your first priority? What is that thing you turn to first when you wake? You grab your phone to check your email, to check the news, to check your social media, to check your to-do list, 
or go check on your kids. And for painfully few, it's Jesus that they turn to first. So let me ask you again, what's your real name? What I mean is, what is your real identity? What defines you, not just on Sunday at church, but on a regular day in Babylon? And are you shaped more by the world and its idols or Jesus? Pastor Josh, this is pretty depressing. So what does faithfulness in Babylon actually look like? One last verse for you. Verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. And therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Keyword in that verse. Said it twice. Defile, right? So what's happening here is this royal food and this royal wine would include a lot of things that were forbidden by God's law for Israelites to be able to eat. Like, you know, bacon, pork, pork chops, stuff like that. And it would be very easy for Daniel at this point to say, you know what? I am a long way from God's people, from God's word. It doesn't hurt anyone. Everyone else is doing it. It's no big deal. Verse 8, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. You see, he felt this conviction from God. And then he makes a commitment to God that even though I live in Babylon, Babylon will not live in me. That this verse, like I've, I've heard some quack, <laughs> not pastors, messages, sermons about this, this verse. It's not about if his special diet is healthier. It's not. It's not about if it's okay to drink wine. It is, in moderation. It's not about him being rebellious, because throughout the rest of the book, you'll see that he's going to actually serve the king and do his job well. It's about what defiles us, what makes us unclean through the indulgence of sin or disobedience against God. And so the first test of faith for, for Daniel and these boys is will we be shaped by scriptures or conform, conform to the culture in Babylon? And like Daniel, you and I, we want to let Jesus shape our identity and our integrity by determining not to compromise on our convictions and commitments for God. I want you to picture this. Daniel, when he enters Babylon, he's about 15 years old. Now, just a little smidge older than some of you. And then he is still there in the city of Babylon to the end of this book, well into his 80s or 90s at that point. And even though he is a normal, imperfect man who sins just like us, because he needs a Savior just as much as us, what we discover is that not one time in this book do we see him compromise on his faith. And what that means for us is whether you are younger 15, or whether you're older and you're in your 80s and 90s, that we can be like Daniel through the power of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. And you need to know that because there are powerful forces at work trying to convince us to choose your convenience over your convictions. So let me ask you, what royal foods are you required to eat in our culture that you need to respectfully decline? And this is not, like I said, bashing like a, uh, the worldly culture around us. But I want you to be thinking critically. For some of us, we join in 
on sinful or obscene conversation so that we can fit in and feel accepted. Some of us, we cheat on our exams, we cheat on our taxes because everyone else is doing it to get ahead. Some it's, I've embraced an unbiblical sexual immorality so that people won't judge me as being on the wrong side of history when we need to be more concerned about being on the right side of eternity. It's not that easy, Pastor Josh. I know, and you're right if you say that, because the problem with convictions is that they come at a cost. There's always a cost. Why aren't you and I more consistent? Why aren't we more like the middle schoolers and high schoolers that I described, including myself? Because we haven't made up our mind that it's worth it, worth it for what we lose. And the truth is, if we follow our convictions through the power of Christ, even though it may cost me my pride or my position or a paycheck, I would lose more. I would lose out on the presence and the promises of Jesus by compromising more than by sticking with my convictions. Some of you might remember this story. Uh, it was January 2022 that I, I shared with you as a church that I had to go to the dentist within the span of two months. I had to go five times. <laughs> I do brush my teeth, okay? I floss every day, brush my teeth. So let me preface this story. But I had to go five times because it turns out I grind my teeth. I'm a, I'm a, some of you probably like me, I'm a tooth grinder, even with like my mouth guard. And I grind my teeth so hard, I actually fractured one of them. And so uh, it required uh, these five visits. I had to get a filling, I had to get two crowns, and then I had to get uh, this broken tooth removed. It's gross. Now, my well-meaning dentist, who kind of looked at me, he, uh, she knew I'm a pastor, and and I think that she had the wrong impression, like, oh, all pastors are so poor. And so, so in her good intentions, she said, you know, you have only come to the dentist once this, this past year, in 2021, and so you have a lot of unused... Now, before you judge me and say, like, how come you don't go to the dentist? That was during the pandemic, okay? So we couldn't go... Okay, anyways. So you have a lot of unused benefits, uh, Pastor Josh, and so, you know, I'm going to submit your claim to the insurance company, but I can bill it for the end of 2021 if you allow me to, because, uh, and I, I suggest that you do, because you're going to need all this other insurance coverage uh, for the rest of the re year, because there's a lot of work to do on your teeth in 2022. And so I was kind of like, for a moment, like, okay, you know, that makes a lot of sense. I guess that's fine. And I could hear myself rationalize. I wasn't thinking about it at the time, but I was rationalizing. You know, I don't want to waste these benefits. It's kind of use it or lose it. And uh, if my dentist says it's okay, then it's probably okay. And I'm sure a lot of other people are doing the same thing. And so I was driving on my way back, Actually, back to work, back to church. <laughs> and as I was driving back to church, this heaviness sank into my heart. I felt God convict me. And the reason why was because I had just done, uh, in my quiet time with the Lord, uh, not that morning, but the, the morning before, uh, God had, was convicting me with that, the very verse I had been reading from Proverbs chapter 12, verse 22, which says, the Lord detests lying lips, but delights in those who act faithful. Pow, 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 right? So got back to church, called, called my dentist back. Uh, you know what? I have made a mistake. I had a lapse in judgment, a lapse in integrity. Would you please bill uh, today's work for 2022? And I'm not proud of that moment. And so I, I, that night, I came home, and around the dinner table, I was uh, sharing with uh, our four kids about every, everything that had happened. Because repentance also includes transparency and accountability. And we had this great discussion about what it means to trust 
and obey God. And my favorite moment is when our older daughter, daughter Emily, asked me, yeah, but is it okay? What if you're poor? Or what if you can't afford it? Is that okay? I said, you know, confidently, I have confidence that if I disobey and deceive, that the price of being out of God's will is far worse. That instead of, of trusting Jesus and his provision and his promises are better, even if I have to pay all the, the dental ex, uh, expenses out of pocket. And I think about that, you know, even though I failed the test of conviction, man, we worship a God of second chances who redeemed my situation and helped to make it right. And I won't lie, like I said, convictions come with a cost. The bill came, it's done, it hurt my feelings a little bit. Yet every time I think about it, I rejoice because Jesus turned my sin and shame into a correction, into a connection that drew me closer to my own family and my Father in heaven. And so I want to challenge you this morning. Would you ask Jesus to speak to you? And you might not, it's, 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 a, it's kind of a frightening challenge, right? Because we all, I mean, generically speaking, we all want to hear from God. But do we really want to hear from God if there's a conviction around it? And I want you to ask him to maybe show you what values or voices or vices that you've allowed to surround you and defile you. And then I dare you to ask him for the courage and conviction to be different from the world around us. Like Daniel, you and I, we are exiles living between two worlds. And it's normal, actually, for God's people to be exiles. It was normal for God's people during the Babylonian Empire. It was normal for the early church in the Roman Empire. It's normal for God's church today to live in exile. Jesus describes it this way in John chapter 17, verses 14 through 19, that you are not of this world, but you are sent into the world. So that means our daily decisions and actions here reveal a better reality to come through the truth and the grace and the beauty of Jesus and his gospel. And as we live in exile, I want to remind you that you are not alone. It feels like it sometimes. That's why it's so hard. And here's why. Being in exile is exactly what Jesus did in order to reach us. He left the comfort and the power and the glory of heaven to come here as an exile, to be like us, to take on flesh. He is literally God, Yet he had no place to lay his head, no place to call home during his earthly ministry in exile. And his convictions came at a cost. He was exiled to a cross, not just to die a horrible death, but to receive the wrath of God that our sin deserved. So there is no greater exile in all of history than Jesus. And because of that, this world is not our home. Your citizenship, your treasures, your future are not here, Jesus was exiled from his home so that we would inherit his, a home that he is preparing for us. So being in exile is meant to set us free from the longings that are misplaced for this life and this world as it is now. And so as we navigate between these two worlds this year, I want you to look at the values that surround you, the comforts that entice you, the identity that defines you, and invite Jesus to give you conviction from his word. And may the Lord bless you and move you from just being convinced 
to being courageous and convicted. May your identity and integrity be made well in Christ. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we give thanks for your deep love for us. We're so thankful for the power of your word and to see normal men, normal people like Daniel, that even from a very young age, just a normal average teenager, and yet you can empower someone like that to stand in the goodness of God, to trust you, to follow you. And Lord, we want to be where he is. So we humbly ask this morning that you would do a little surgery in our hearts as we sing these next few songs, that you would help us to have the courage to turn towards you. It's not that we can be good or be righteous on our own, but we're so thankful that we have a Savior who does it for us, who died for us, who cleanses us, who empowers us to live beyond what we could on our own. Would you call forth in us the man or woman of courage and conviction that you have made us to be? May we follow you, enjoy you, and live for you today. In Jesus' name.